And then we're going to kind of get down and get really practical and look at kind of three training tips that I think are in this text. So we're going to start out big picture, then we're going to zoom on in for um, the eminently practical. Are you running the race? This race metaphor. You know, I hope as you heard this text that your imagination began to stir a little bit. Because I think that's the intention of the biblical writer. They're trying to conjure an image for us that we can see and that we can reflect on and that we can base our lives according to. We've tried to do our part this morning, obviously things are a little different, to kind of help encourage your imagination. We've had, you know, people here, you know, wearing race uniforms to remind us that whatever our outward garb is, we're in a race. And as you, as you come in, I hope you have the sense that you're not just at 578 Main Street, Hingham, but that you're in the Superdome. You're in the Coliseum. There's lines stretched out around you. you we, we've got this race that we're running with runners. We have the cross of Christ, the goal which we are to fix our eyes upon. We've got the cloud of witnesses. The cloud was bigger in the last service. We've got the cloud of witnesses behind. The men and women, like we saw in Hebrews 11, who have faithfully gone before. They've run their race. It's done. They are finally enjoying their Sabbath's rest in the presence of the King, enjoying Him and knowing Him. And they stand on the other side, gazing at us as an inspiration, as an example, as an encouragement to what a life of faith can look like. You know, the, um, they gave us this picture, I believe, because they wanted to give us a metaphor for what the life of faith is supposed to look like. And I say the word supposed to look like because I think it is a metaphor that we fail often to incorporate. We, we get kind of dumbed down into the world of the mundane. We hit the floor in the early hours of the morning and we're thinking about our commitments. We're thinking about how we're going to pay our mortgage. We're thinking about what we've got to cook and how we're going to clean and how we're going to you know, do our tests and our projects and our homework. And we are overwhelmed with, in this life, significant but very mundane things. And we lose sense of the wonder of faith that we have been ushered into. And so we have this metaphor designed to function as a proverbial jersey that we would put on to remind ourselves we're in the midst of something that is truly great. I watched Chariots of Fire last night. I, I got up this morning. I went for a run at like 5.30. Don't do that. Um, trying to remember, trying to just let this idea sink in that we're in the midst of this great, mysterious, awe-inspiring race if we are a follower of Christ. That we worship this all-powerful, majestic God who speaks things into existence. This this God with an incredible love and power that we only see as a glimpse in this life. And yet, that we were made by Him all destined for eternity. Every one of us. And yet, that by our sins, by nature and by choice, we have become ruined creatures walking around able to to look good and make ourselves feel good but on the surface beneath the surface rather in a sense ruined 
And yet, in, in, in the depths of His love, so deep that we can not even reach it with a plumb line, this God entered into our experiences, was made flesh, that He might run a perfect race. That He might lead the way. That He would suffer on a cross, satisfying the justice of God. That He could usher in sons and daughters into the kingdom. That there could indeed become a cloud for those of us who are still going forward in the course And that for those of us who surrender our lives to Him and worship Him, all of a sudden we've got a jersey on and we're running in the midst of a supernatural struggle that stretches beyond that which our eyes are able to lay hold of. We have a metaphor this morning designed to awaken our imagination. You know, long before uh, men like Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton and and Williams wrote these kind of grand fantasy novels depicting Christian themes in this struggle of good versus evil. You know why they did that. It's not like they were just looking to sell a book. Many of them you read, they, they too felt this pull towards the mundane and they wanted to free us to see the big picture that God wants us to see that we live in the midst of. Yet 1,900 years before them, the writer of Hebrews tries to give us a metaphor designed as well to awaken our vision for that which we are in the midst of. And our vision is an important thing. Because our vision influences our expectation. And our expectation determines our reaction. And our reaction goes a long way towards guaranteeing success or failure, doesn't it? You know, if I have the vision, if my vision for the Christian life is such that once I become a follower of Christ, my life is supposed to be easy, then when trouble or hardship comes, how am I going to react? I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be confused. I'm going to be annoyed. I'm going to think God doesn't care. He's not listen, listening. Or maybe I made a mistake and I'm going to back out. If my attitude of the Christian life is that discipleship and service is optional rather than mandated upon every believer, when I have opportunities that come before me for growth and service for the King, I may take some and I may pass over others. Probably pass over most of them because it's not a big deal. And I may cross the finish line, but with much less of a reward and many fewer crowns than I could have had with which I can offer my King. Yet if I have a vision that the Christian life is a long, hard race with, with bruises and calluses and twists and turns and that I need to train for it rigorously, daily, then, I will be, then when trouble and hardship comes, my reaction will be oh so very different and I will be ensured a much greater degree of success. Listen to Paul. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under the control lest after preaching to others, I myself shall become disqualified. 
Successful runners win. They cross the finish line. Because at the outset they say, I am a runner and I want to win. I want to make it. I don't want to drop out. I'm going to do whatever I can to get to the end and to keep running. They exercise self-control in their eating, in their sleeping, in their time management. They run with purpose, passion, direction. And so, God wants us to compare our faith, our lives, to say, are we running the race? Are we running or are we a spectator? Are we in the midst of running with fervor and passion or, or have we all but dropped out? Where are we on our race? You know, I had the privilege of watching my wife train for the Chicago Marathon a number of years back. And I say watch because it was hard and I didn't want to do it. I would see her get up, you know, and, and in the beginning it was kind of easy. You know, she'd only run five days a week. That, that's pretty easy, right? And she would get up and she would run five days a week. And, you know, it very quickly became an all-encompassing endeavor. Because really quickly, you know, I, I was informed, you know, we needed to get her really good shoes so she didn't injure herself. And then in the midst of, you know, these cold Chicago winters, we had to get her, you know, good, like, running gear so she didn't leave her face in the snow. And all of a sudden, you know, she needed to eat right to fuel her body, and she needed to train, and she needed to sleep a certain amount. My favorite was her long days, her long run days, because, you know, she she worked six days a week at a time, and Sunday was the only day she could really go for this, you know, many-hour run. And Sunday was also the day that we, you know, went to church and worshipped and served. So the only time she could run, if she wanted to be a runner that ran a marathon, was to get up before church and go on her long run. I remember the day that she got to run 18 miles and got up at 4 a.m. And I remember this day because she got back from running 18 miles and I was still hitting the snooze button. And she ran 18 miles that morning, but I think I made us late for church. She was committed to running. She was committed to this race. Nothing was going to get in the way of her doing that. And this is the picture that God is giving us this morning to reflect upon ourselves. Are we willing to lay hold of such a high calling as this mystical race that we're in the middle of? So I want you to take this picture home. I want you to see the cloud beckoning you on. I want you to see the finish line no matter how far in the future it looks like it is. I want you to proverbially realize that you've got that jersey on if you're a Christian and that you're called to run hard and forward. Let's get a little practical. Training tip number one we see in the text. Get rid of the dead weight. Get rid of it. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. If we're going to run a good race, we can't be carrying around excess weight and baggage. And for the Christian, sin has a habit of being that very thing. We know that the Bible teaches us that you know, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to continue to stumble and fail and sin, though the goal should be to become more and more like Christ. But this side of the cloud, we're never going to achieve that 100% of the time. Only when we're in heaven. And yet, here in this text, it makes it sound as if we have a great ability to cast aside that sin, doesn't it? Cast it aside. Throw off everything that hinders. 
it makes it sound like it's something that we can really do. Why is that? You know, I think if we look at Scripture, we see that there are different degrees or senses of sin. You know, a few weeks ago when I was preaching, we talked about this idea of, of deliberate or defiant sin, if you remember. This idea that there are some sins that we know it's wrong, we understand it's wrong. Maybe we've even been told by someone, stop doing it. But we say, I don't care. And we say, I don't care again and again and again. And we keep doing it, knowing that it's wrong for a really long amount of time. And that's this deliberate, defiant sin. And then we've got another type of sin that we see Paul addressing in Romans 7, where he says, hey, I do what I don't want to do. I, I know it's wrong, and I'm striving, fighting to be free of this. But, you know, for every two steps forward, I fall back a step, and it is a daily, ongoing struggle to break free from this sin. That's a very different thing than the other one. And then there's a third type of sin I think we see in the Scriptures. I like to call it flirtation sin. I think it's, I think it's what the writer is here addressing because he says, he says, get rid of it, throw it out. You know, flirtation sins are the kind of sins that we know that this thing over here is bad. Like, we, you know, we see some kind of a line there and we say, okay, that's bad. I know I shouldn't go there. But you know, that road leading up over there is a really nice road. And, and I kind of like that road. So, okay, I'm going to get as close as I can to that line without going over it. I'm going to camp there. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to build my house there. I'm going to stand on that road leading to that bad thing. But, but I'll, I'll just stop short. I can do it. And so I'll be at the line, but I won't go over the line. And inevitably, because we are what we are, we fall over and we fall over the line. You know, I have, I have counseled mar- you know, couples seeking marriage where you know, they come to me and they say, yes, we commit, we want to honor God with our bodies, we want to keep the marriage bed pure, we don't want to have sex until we're married. Great! And, and they make that commitment to God and each other. And yet, they are really excited to have the intimacy that God promises within the covenant of marriage. And so they say, well, let's go far down into enjoying that intimacy as we can, but we won't go over the line. And, and being what we are, you know, week after week, the line begins to get more muddied, confused. They fail. And all of a sudden, this pure, beautiful desire to glorify God through their relationship and wait on His timing becomes more defined by what they're trying not to fall into than by what they are living for. You know, I've had you know, the privilege of knowing wonderful you know, young and older women who you know, fall into the trap of, of, of the Britney Spears generation we live in. Where they say, yeah, I know my body's a temple. I know, you know God has given it to me. But... Well, you know, everyone else in the culture dresses like this and acts like this. So where's the line so I can go up to the line? Instead of thinking, how can I glorify God, God through my dress? And how can I be pure? And how can I not give men a, the excuse they don't need to stumble and fall into sin and lust? Let me go right to that line. Let me show as much skin as I can. Let me wear clothes as tight as I can. Where is the line of dishonoring God with my body, because I'm going to go right up to where that line is, and I'm going to live there. And, and all of a sudden, something has happened that should not happen. 
Yet, it seems to me that in the context of the Christian community, these are the easiest sins for us to fling aside if we are but willing. If we have the resolve to cast them aside as we are compelled by this writer to do. Get rid of the dead weight. Because all of a sudden it will become to define your life instead of the race that God wants you to run. And God doesn't like it when we flirt with Him. And He doesn't like it when we flirt with that which He has saved us from. Training tip number two. Keep moving. Don't give up. Maintain momentum. Let us run the race. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out with us. The race is long. The race is hard. And let's be honest, many of us at one time or another have probably had the temptation to just quit. It's just hard. There is adversity. There is difficulty. There are blisters, injuries, calluses, letdowns, disappointments, discouragements. The list could go on and on. And the great question is, will that prompt us to go forward or retreat backward? You know, the encouraging thing I think about this text right here is it is a race that has been marked out for us. We're not running some haphazard track that we don't know where it's going to go and where the end is. It has been marked out for us. That is, that God has determined for you and for I a track. He's drawn the lines. He's, He's painted them into the ground. He knows the destination. He has created a race for you and I to run which can be run. It is not impossible. There may, be, there may come disappointments and discouragements and surprises for us, but not for Him. There may come moments of injury, of woundedness, but He knew they were going to be there in that turn in the road and He has prepared an aid station there for us to refresh us and get us through. We may come around a bend and see a mountain that we don't know how we're ever going to get over it. But He marked it out for us. And He measured the grade to be just such that if we shorten our stride, we can keep moving and get over the mountain. He's marked out a race for us if we will run, if we will endure. If we will have the endurance, the perseverance, and the patience. How many in the cloud do we see that needed to learn the lesson of perseverance and endurance as they ran their race? You know, we've got Abraham and Sarah and they're old beyond their years and they get given this promise. You're going to have a child. And yet, she didn't conceive the next day. She didn't have the child nine, ten, even eleven months later. Time went by. Years went by. They they were tempted to try to fulfill the promise on their own because they were given it and they believed it, but it was a long wait. You know, we've got David, and David, what? He gets promised to be the king of Israel. And and they come out and they anoint him with oil and in the presence of his family, he's the new king. Yet how many years? How many long, hard years? terrifying years, does David wait before that promise is fulfilled? He's on the run. He's hiding out in caves. He's dodging Saul's spears. He is running like a madman. 
with this group of guys that if I were him, I'd always be wondering, am I one step away from them turning on me? Himself given this temptation, hey, here's Saul, fulfill your destiny now. And he says, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on God's timing. I'm going to endure. We need endurance. We need to keep moving again and again and again on the long road if we are to cross the line. So we've got three short questions that I think can help us answer for ourselves whether or not we've got that endurance or if we need to seek it out because we're not primed and prepped to keep moving. Question one, do you have the patience for a long run? Today we expect prayers to be answered quickly, desires to be gratified instantly, sin to be shed easily, and spiritual growth to come meteorically and with little effort and energy. But we have to consider these people because that was not their experience. Again and again, God gives them promises, and again and again, many of them have the long wait before the promise is fulfilled. A wait that I think tests, do they really believe it? Will they really endure? Will they keep going, running, moving, continuing to hold out hope for the fulfillment of that promise? And there is little reason to think that it should be anything different for us. We need to cast aside our culture's idol of instant gratification and instead wait on the perfect providential timing of the living God. Question number one. Or number two, excuse me. Are you pacing yourself for a long run? I, like many other pastors, have have gotten up in front of a congregation and said, hey, if you're a believer you've got a spiritual gift, you need to begin exercising that in the life of the local church. And that's true. However, there are some of us that are doing a little too much exercising. There are some of us that are running so fast and so hard that we are going to drop out of the race before we get to the line. Because we just can't. Our bodies weren't made for, for this much. There are some of us that are in the place of being burnt out and tired and weary because at one point in the past, we ran so hard, we lost it. We tumbled, we fell, we ran out of breath, and we never got back on our horse. There are some of us that actually need to step back and do less. There are some of us that need to stop serving, maybe, I don't know, go from three nights a week down to two, or even one, heaven forbid that need to seek and maintain the integrity of our own spiritual growth, that need to spend time with our families, that need to just develop friendships with the people around us that aren't yet running in the race. There are some of us that need to take the encouragement one of my professors once gave me where he said, for some people, the most holy, worshipful thing they can do is take a nap. Some of us need to just take a proverbial nap. You know who you are. The kingdom will go forward even if you you take a step back. God's that big. Question number three, are you checking the distance markers? You know, in a good race, they have, like generally about every mile, they have this marker where, you know, so you know, okay, now I'm at one mile, now I'm at two, three, four, ten miles. 
And in a good race, they'll even be able to give you your time in each mile. So you can kind of get your splits. So you know, you'll be running by and, and you, know, you generally have like a, a chip on you or whatever. And it'll tell you, yeah, this is how, how long it took you to run the last mile. And the races I've run, this has been a great help. Because, you know, you're there, you're running the race, and there's been races I've run where I, like, take off because, like, I'm competitive. And so, you know, you, you start out this race of, you know, a couple hundred people or thousands, whatever, and I just want to go. And there's, like, this adrenaline where you just take off together. And there's races where I hit mile two because I'm so excited about passing people. It's fun to pass people. And you pass people, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, my goodness, I can't keep this up. I hit the mark and I'd be like, I'm going to be vomiting under the tree in about 30 minutes. I've got to stop right now. Then I've done other races where I'm running and running and I'm getting tired. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I, I really can't do this. You know, so, and I come around the corner and then there's, I see that there's a hill that just like goes right to heaven. <laughs> and I'm like, forget this. And yet I go and I pass the marker and the guy shouts out my time and I realize when I see the marker, it says there's only one mile to go. And all of a sudden I think maybe I've got enough to dig down deep and make that last mile. I can keep moving. I don't have to stop. Are we measuring the markers in our faith and finding strength from them? One of the things I love about this church is that we have people here that have been Christians for you know just a year, whether they're 13 or 35. And for the first time in their life, they're reading the Word. And, and, they're, and they're saying, how do, how do I pray? Just like the early disciples did. And then we have people that have walked with the Lord for five, six, seven decades. And for the, for, for the latter group, I want to say, keep moving. You have been running long. You have been running hard. Don't let up now. You are too close to joy. You are too close to victory. Make these last few markers you pass among the very best of your life. May you run in such a way that you can cry a victory shout with Paul as he entered those last few markers of his life when he shouted in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all of those who have longed for His appearing. You're so close. Run hard. You're an inspiration to the rest of us. Run strong. Keep moving. Then there are those of us who are, perhaps by the grace of God, have many markers yet left to pass. And to those of you I say, measure the gate of those who have passed the markers before you. See how they did it. Don't try to just figure out how to be an expert runner on your own. You know, this is the first generation in history, I think, that has begun to stop looking towards people that have passed more markers than them for guidance and have begun to looking more at people who are the same age as if they know how to do it. I mean, I can remember, you know, being in high school, you know, having people always, you know, I was the, come, let's go to Chris for advice, as if I knew what to say. But I made it sound good. 
There are people that have passed markers before you that have had the same gifts, the same fears, the same worries, the same garbage family background perhaps, and they have made it. Some of them have already crossed the line and are among the cloud, and some of them are are nearing those last few markers. Look to them. Look to them to realize how to be an expert runner. Read good Christian biographies of saints that have so much more to offer. You know, read like something like the biography um, of Brother Andrew. It's called God Smuggler. I have read that again and again. Here is a guy in that book, this missionary, that has a faith and a prayer life that goes beyond my imagination. Read the life of David Brainerd. Here you've got this guy that most people haven't heard of that you know, lived 29 short years, experienced incredible adversity and pain, self-doubt, and yet has this joy in Christ that has helped spawn the modern missionary movement for the last 350 years. Read books like Charles Swindoll's Great Lives from God's Word and see how Joseph and Moses and David and others like them live to glorify God by battling sin, temptation, and trial just like us. i got an even better one. Everyone in this room can have the same spiritual mentor is John Piper. John Piper, you know, award-winning writer, pastor, theologian. I have heard him live give us all permission to have the same person that he uses for guidance and direction. The guy's been dead for about 250 years, which, you know, which is a little bit of a problem, but the writings of Jonathan Edwards are readily available. And the, the beautiful thing is, he doesn't get inundated with all our requests for guidance. He can talk to all of us without getting overwhelmed. It's a beautiful thing. Are you measuring the mile markers? Training tip number three. Don't forget where the party really is. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In many ways, I think Jesus demonstrates for us perfectly what it is to run a long, hard race and to endure amidst it. I mean, when God decided to become man, don't you just think, you know, and he decided to what? Set aside, you know, I mean, here he is in heaven receiving worship from countless angels. When he decided to come down, he didn't just do it in order to do what he wanted to do right away. He didn't come down and go to the cross right away and say, okay, I'm done, I finished my work, let me go back to to the worship and the glory. He left, he came down in the midst of a culture that he was going to grow up in where he needed to wait 30 years before he would be allowed, under kind of those cultural guidelines, to be a rabbi or a teacher. 30 years of walking and loving among people like us. And then even when he starts his public ministry, that goes on for a number of years. He's teaching and he's healing and he's exercising demons and he's doing all these things which themselves too are in anticipation alone of his ultimate purpose on Calvary's cross. God took his time. God didn't rush it. It says what? That he endured the shame of the cross. He scorned shame for the joy set before him. 
God left the glory and the party in heaven and He didn't try to fabricate it here on earth right away. He didn't try to rush into it. He was going to wait. He, he, was, he said, you know what, I'll, I'll go to the cross. I will die that death that is reserved for terrorists and the worst of criminals. I'll go there because I'm focused on the joy that I'm going to have when I go back. I'm focused on the joy I am going to have when that action redeems precious sons and daughters unto my glory. I'm going to wait. You know, and it seems to me that that in and of itself is an especially difficult thing for us to do here in America in general, let alone in an area like this on the south shore of Boston. We're running the race, but we are so tempted by the spectators around us to start trying to fabricate and create and enjoy a party now rather than for living the one on the other side of that finish line. That's what we're led towards. That's what we're tempted towards. You know, to, to create a party now. And some outside observers of the church may wonder whether we're looking to create the party here or are waiting for the ultimate New Year's Eve bash when Christ returns and the kingdom is fully inaugurated. You know, one of the oddities I've, of, of my life that is kind of a God's province thing, I guess, is every church I have been at has, um, just as a worshiper and, and then as a pastor, has been in, a, in an area like this. An area, you know, of a middle or upper class kind of area. And one of the opportunities I have had in that area is to you know, become friends with a lot of people a lot more influential and affluent than myself. Some I've gotten very close to. You know, some of them have probably made more in a year than I've ever made. And yet what has inspired me in getting to know some of these men and women is to see how these people, who some of whom have such resource to create a party now, but the way they exercise their time and their heart and their treasure makes it so clear that they're focused on the joy set before them and the party they're going to have when they themselves cross the finish line and lay it all at the feet of the King. And it humbles me. It humbles me and inspires me because I don't know if I had the opportunity, if I would have the faith and the strength to do the same thing. And yet, we, that is what God calls us to to wait and remember that the party is on the other side of the line. That Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. He endured opposition. He suffered difficulty. He went without. He waited a long time to have the rejoicing that He deserved to have every moment of His life. When we see that mirror before us, are we willing to do the same? You know, even if we can fabricate the party here, it's going to be short-lived and momentary. But the wedding banquet of the Lamb that we are trying to run towards is like no other party. The music is going to be like no other music. The food is going to be like no other food. It's going to be the best company in the world. And that is where we are striving. So walk away. Maintain this picture of this of, of this race, of this cloud, of the line set before us. Maintain it as you go home. Ask yourself the question, am I running the race? What do I need to do if I'm not? You know, do, do, am I patient enough? Do I have what it takes to endure? 
What do I need to do to, what dead weight do I maybe need to drop and cast and kick out of my sight? What do I need to do to make sure I wait till the end for the party and the joy that I want to share with Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that as our Creator, you are a God who speaks to us as men and women living in a certain culture and that you are able to give us metaphors in order to speak directly to our experience and to call us on towards faithfulness. Father, it is not easy to run a race. It is hard work. We can't do it alone. We can't do it without your Spirit. Some of us in this room, we desperately want to do do it more than we're doing it, but we need your help. Shape us, lead us, guide us, empower us to run, to finish strong, and to endure for your glory. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.